0: Heavenly Father, we come on this night and this season of Advent, and it is such a wonderful time to be able to celebrate the birth of your Son and the joy that comes from that. And it is great to be here, gathered together in a warm place with uh, familiar faces and some new faces and a community of faith that looks diverse and yet worships the one true God and comes together around your text, and your word, and your truth. And so we come tonight asking that you would reveal yourself to us through Second Kings, through what you have done in the life of Elijah, Elisha, and give us wisdom and discernment as to what it means to live lives of faith and obedience. Be with our time tonight, Holy Spirit. Speak into our hearts and into our minds. Empower us and be with our discussions Uh, that we may be gracious to one another, that we may be willing to share the truth that is going on in our lives and be open to what other people in our groups have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's good to be back. I was supposed to be here last week, and then I had um, some other commitments that required me to not be here, Um, so I was really disappointed because I was excited about last week, and then... I'm equally as excited about this week. The interesting thing is, you remember last time I was here, I was very excited about that passage, um, and we're going to circle back and seemingly go over some similar ground that we went over last time I was here uh, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 in particular. So to catch us up, Elijah um, is gone. Notice I said, I didn't say that he's dead, he's gone. Um, Chariots of fire... The whole thing. Um, and Elisha has come on the scene. As we saw last week, Elisha has some significant um, abilities. Hashtag she-bear times two. Um, and so this week we're going to see some more stories from Elisha's life. The, the thing that we need to point out is that we are not looking chronologically at Elisha's life at this point. And so chapter 4 and chapter 5 are not chronological in the sense that after this, then this, then this. It's more of a top, I guess it'd be like a top six, (laughs) because we're really looking at six events in Elisha's life. But this starts, chapter 4 starts a section um, of kind of these greatest hits in Elisha's life. I just had some puppy chow over in the youth group. It was delicious, <laughs> but it's causing me to drool because I didn't get to finish it. <laughs> and I did have some lefse after dinner. So, um, all right. So here we are in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, um, I have nothing against Max. I just feel like um, this is kind of short and choppy, so I'll, we'll just read the text. Verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. So we get this instance of Elisha um, intervening for a widow. Now, we don't get it outright in the text, um, but there is great consensus that this individual, this um, widow, was married to Obadiah, who was one of the main prophets. If you remember back, when the fifty or the hundred, two groups of fifty prophets, were hiding in the caves, um, hiding so that they were not killed, Obadiah would have been the one that set them up in the caves. And so it's not that she's just any widow. She is a widow, as we are told, um, from a husband who was a servant of God or who was a man of faith. So that's going to play in a very important role. So she grew up with a husband, or grew up. She was married to a husband who was actively involved in faith. Religion was a big part of their life. Worshiping Yahweh was a big part of their life. And so she knows who Elisha is, and she knows the value that he has and the fact that he can do things for her uh, that certainly not other people can do and that God can provide for her. So there's this interesting context that we need to be aware of about this woman. We also know that she has two sons. Now, it was very common in that day or in that time that you would, in essence, put your kids up for collateral in in a debt situation. Now, if her husband was Obadiah and he was kind of on the run from the king, she would have needed to rely on credit and being in debt believing that God would provide for her. And so now she is in a place where she cannot meet the needs of her creditor. And she is going to lose her sons, and her sons are going to go into slavery. And so she goes to Elisha, and he says, what are we working with? And she talks about this oil. Now, he makes it explicit to her that she is to go out and to get as many vessels or jars as she can. And he gives this little editorial, and not too few. And so she goes out and she gets them and she starts filling them up. It's very important to make the note that it's done behind closed doors. It's not this big scene. It's a family affair. It's not just her, but it's her and her sons, the passing on of this faith within the family. And they just start pouring and they just fill up another and another and another and another until it's full, until they're all full. And when we read this, as I have many times, I go back and forth. Because you ask yourself, what's the question you ask yourself? Why didn't somebody shut the door? Okay, that's a different question. Literally, could somebody shut the door? Uh, why didn't she get more vessels? Right? Are you asking yourself that? You should be. I asked myself, why did you not get more vessels? And then the next thought is, in verse 7, she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So it's this interesting thing of Was it her faith that limited how many vessels she got? Or did she have divine wisdom that this is the amount of money that I need, and if I sell this many vessels, then we will be set. As in, we will have exactly the amount that we need to pay the creditor and to live on. And so we go back and forth and the commentators don't really wrestle with this question, but it certainly is a good one to, to ask ourselves, is it that she doubted what God could do, which is a, a more of a challenging position because she doesn't really doubt what God could do, she does it and God responds, or is it that she knew exactly what God, what she needed and responded accordingly. Have you ever been in this, in this situation where you're in crisis mode and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. God, I need help. Or you ask somebody for help and they're like, what do you need? And you tell them less than maybe you need because you're afraid of asking too much when in reality they wanted to give you an abundance of what they had. So uh, when we moved uh, to seminary, a friend of mine, it was the craziest thing, he said to me, I'll never forget it, we were actually playing Frisbee um, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. For a, we were there for a friend's wedding. And he said, um, we are going to s- support you and Nikki." While you're at seminary, to which I thought, okay, <laughs> sounds great, and so they sent me, they would send me seventy-five dollars a month, and I thought seventy-five bucks—that's not a lot—but then I kind of had this idea, and I took the sev- first seventy-five-dollar check and I bought a bag of green coffee beans, and I started Spunky Monkey Coffee Company. And I took that bag and I roasted it and I sold it. Then I had more money. And then I took some of that and I bought more coffee and more coffee and more coffee and then I just had this coffee business that God used to provide throughout my time at seminary. And it's this little bit of faith and it just keeps going and going and going and this Energizer Bunny-like jar of oil She doesn't have an abundance. She's not building a new place. She's not buying a second place. She has enough to live on for the rest of her life, or seemingly that's what it says. You and your sons can live on the rest. But the important thing is she's in need. She goes to God, or God's man, Elisha, he gives her an instruction, and she responds accordingly. There's no questioning. There's no doubt. There's all these things, unless we believe that she doubted how much God could provide. And it's an interesting question with not a real clear answer. So we get another story. Now, when you see this one day, there's not a clear indication of what day that was. That's why this is not a chronological um, it's not like this widow story happens, and then the next day um, the Shunamite woman happens, which I just realized in our questions we spe- we spelled Shunamite. <laughs> Spell check must not have caught that one. We spelled Shunamite wrong. Uh, one day, verse eight, Elisha went on to Shunam, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. Okay, so we have a contrast. We have a widow who's. Uh, desperate for money or for um, provisions and now we have this wealthy woman. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to to him, so he, Elisha, says to his servant, say now to her, see you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf? To the king or the commander of the army, she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this next this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. So we get this next story in the life of Elisha. And Elisha, this is a pretty common idea of the prophets passing down um, a particular route, whether they were going to Mount Carmel or not. Um, They would go down the same route, and she notices him again and again and again And so she says, hey, I bet this guy would like to have his own little Airbnb bonus room on top of our house. Pretty sweet. What we have to be aware of is Elisha doesn't go to her. She sees a need, and she meets it. And it wasn't even exactly a need, because Elisha seems to be doing just fine, She wants to bless Elisha with this opportunity to stop amid his journey and rest, provide him with food, and it is, in essence, the heart of hospitality. Elisha doesn't need this room, he doesn't even really seem to need her food, but she sees a need for someone else, and she provides for it. And it's not like, oh, here, I'll set up a tent on top of my roof, and I'll get the extra Um, bunk beds that our kids slept on. They don't have kids. And, you know, kind of the leftovers. She builds this brand new room, sets it up, gives him everything he needs. And so he decides uh, that what can we do for you? Now, the other thing that we need to be aware of is how he is communicating with her. Because she shows great reverence to Elisha, the fact that he is this holy man of God. And so it is fairly common for her to communicate uh, through his servant. So she basically says, hey, I, I really don't need anything. So, last story woman in great need with two sons, no husband. This story woman not in need, no son, and a husband. And so Gehazi has this idea that he's going, what, she, what we could bless her with is a child. Now, notice in verse 16, when Elisha says, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And what is her response? No, my lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. So it's a little bit of, Is she doubting what God will do? Or is it so big that she is like, oh my word, I would have never even imagined having a son, in essence, accepting their lot in life and being barren and her her husband is old. And so she's reluctant to accept the blessing of God through this son. And Elisha doesn't does not skip a beat, and we're told, but the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Part of what we're doing here, or part of what the the writer of second Kings is doing is showing us the power of who Elisha is and the connection that he has with God and how God is using him. So this pattern of barren woman. of a certain age, having a child. This is not a new rodeo for God. He's done this before. And so she has this woman, or she has this son. Now, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, O my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel, or Caramel for you distinguished folks. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I say, do not deceive me? So we have some interesting things going on, and depending on how we view her and how we view her actions, she is either a woman of extreme faith or not. Because her son dies. Now, obviously, he's of a particular age. We don't know exactly how, he is, how old he is, but he's old enough to be out in the field with his father. In essence, he has heat stroke um, and dies. And... When her husband asks what's going on, she lies to him. And when Gehazi asks what is going on, is all well, she lies to him again. And it brings up this really interesting ethical question of, is she outright lying to deceive, or is she shading the truth... In order to show her faith and protect maybe those that have lesser faith. In essence, if she would have said to her husband, I need to go to Elisha because our son is dead, would he have reacted differently and kept her from going? And she believes, if I can get to Elisha, God will provide through him. Or is that what she believed? So she gets past Gehazi. She's like, I need to talk to the man himself. She falls down at his feet, and she says in verse 28, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? So in essence, she's upset because she didn't want a son. No, that's not the case. In essence, God has blessed her with something, And now he has taken it away. And she is extremely torn up about it. And she seems to communicate, it would have been better if I would have not had this son. At the same time, she has faith that Elisha can provide healing for her son. And it's this interesting picture of, When we are in grief, we can still be in grief and be upset with God and yet remain hopeful and have faith in what he can do. Because she says, she's upset. I didn't want this child. In essence, you have deceived me. And yet she's there because she thinks that Elisha can provide for her son. So Elisha says to Gehazi, tie up your garment. In essence, gird up your loins. Well, to say it the way it should be said, gird up your loincloth. You remember um, the Usain Bolt experience after of Elijah? Okay, Gehazi is in that same track and field training situation. Uh, gird up your loins or your loincloth, and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. Very interesting perspective. In essence, the child is still dead, but the awakening is mostly dead. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying uh, dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and as he stretched himself upon him the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked, uh, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. This child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and, called, and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. So remember, back in 1 Kings chapter 17, right, we see the first instance of CPR by Elijah. Not really, that's a joke. Um, We have a similar instance where Elisha goes in, okay, again, shuts the door. That is a key point. This is not out in the public, wide open. He goes in, he shuts the door so that it's in private he does this interesting thing where he, in essence, passes his breath um, to this boy. Why does the child sneeze seven times? We don't really know. But the whole point of this is that God is using Elisha and the faith of this woman to bring her son back to life. And There is some question around why why was his servant not able to revive the child? So why does Elisha tell the servant, take my staff, go and raise this child back to life? Was it a setup? Did Elisha believe that God would use his servant? As we're going to see in chapter 5, Gehazi has some uh, interesting things about him going on. We can get tied up in all these little nitty-gritty details, but the fact of the matter is, Elisha saves this boy's life. In essence, God blesses her with a son, unexpected, takes the blessing away, and then brings the blessing back. And it's this really interesting look of, seemingly her faith does not waver significantly. Because when she comes to Elisha, yes, she is upset, but she believes that he can do a miracle by bringing her son back to life. Have you ever had that instance in your life where God blesses you with something that you did not expect, and you're so excited about it, and then God seemingly takes it away, and you're crushed? And then he brings it back, and you're like, what's going on? More often the case is God blesses us, seemingly removes the blessing from us, we become crushed, we get mad at God, and then we never come back around, allowing for him to bless us again. As I talked about uh, last time I was here, Nikki and I moved to New Mexico so that I can take this um, directorship at this camp, and I'm like, Yes, God is blessing me. And we move down there, and then the lake is drying up in front of us. And in November, I'm supposed to go on this Cabela's elk hunt. Long story, I'll tell you some other time. And the day before I'm supposed to leave, my boss tells me, Oh, by the way, you're not gonna have a job because we're closing the camp. And I'm like, What? like, God, you brought me down here. You brought me down here to bless me so that I could bless this job and these kids and be a part of this. And now you're ripping it from my hand. And then he comes back around and blesses me with a different job in town, which completely changed to some degree the the trajectory of my life. But we see this, God blesses unexpectedly. He takes it away. She remains faithful to, uh, obedient to God and believes that God can provide. And God comes back around and blesses her again. So two stories of devout, strong women of faith. One is poor, seemingly moving towards death because of her debt. One is well off but experiences death after blessing, and it's all at the hands of Elisha. You're like, what, what about the guys? They're coming. Verse 38, And Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. Again, this is a very ambiguous time reference. It's not, and then Elisha went to Gilgal. Chances are, this reference is to the seven-year famine that was taking place during um, Elisha's ministry. We're not exactly sure at what point in the famine this is taking place, but the famine, there was a big famine. It took uh, approximately seven years. And so, uh, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. He said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew not knowing what they were. I mean, typical guy, right? You had one job. You don't know how to cook? That was a joke. I'm not saying guys don't know how to cook. Some of you don't, right? Jamie, we had this discussion earlier. Okay, well, let's try that again. So a typical guy goes out and he gets the wrong thing. And they poured out some of the... Uh, And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And you're like, yeah, amen. And they could not eat it. He said then, bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So we go from Elisha raising a child back to life to a group of guys hanging out at Gilgal, and they're hungry. You're like, this seems to be a bit of a contrast. It's not that they're starving. It's not that they're going to die. They're hungry. There's famine in the land. Why is that important? Because the, the availability of produce and whatnot is limited. And the one guy goes out, and he grabs these wild gourds that are known to grow, out, grow throughout the land that that can produce death. (laughs) Like, literally, they can poison you. And so what does Elisha do? He's like, you know, Bobby Flay, give me some flour and I can fix this. And he throws some flour in the pot and, voila, delicioso. What does that have to do with Elisha? I mean, He's like saving a woman's life, saving kids from slavery, bringing kids back to life. And now he's fixing stew? A man came from... So there's this interesting thing that I was somewhat convicted about um, after I taught last time. We had the whole uh, pronunciation uh, education. Baal, not bail. Well, Max pronounces it Baal, But other readers pronounce it Baal, so it's kind of potato-potato. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, "'Give to the the men that they may eat.' But his servant said, "'How can I set this before a hundred men?' So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Again, why is this important? Well, if there's a famine going on, and if there's first fruits to be had, which would be extremely rare during famine and drought, those are supposed to go to God. So we have this interesting story about these first fruits. Being brought to the men of God, and the guy's like, huh, "I don't have enough food." And Elisha says, "You have plenty of food. Just set it down there, and they will eat." You know, we see this again with Jesus feeding the five thousand. How does these two, how do these two stories fit within the larger context of Elisha's life and this? Uh, story that we're working on right now God cares about the totality of individuals lives so no miracle is too big or too small for God to provide if we were to write a um, one sentence of what chapter 4 is about it is that God cares for the totality of his people and no miracle is too big or too small He can provide you with everything that you need to sustain your life, and he cares about that. He can bring a person back to life. He can fix your ruined meal so that you can eat, and he can multiply bread so that you have enough. It's an amazing thing. And Elisha, this man of God, is being used by God in big things and in small things, and the writer of Second Kings wants us to be aware of these facts. So may we not just pass you know, this, oh, that was kind of a weird little story. No, it has meaning, and it has value. So the next time you got something going on on the stove, reach for the flour. You never know. First you want to cook it, though, with maybe a little bit of butter so you get that floury taste cooked out of it, gentlemen, So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? to kill and to make alive, that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash, them, wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So we go from these stories about all of these kind of unnamed people in essence to a very specific individual and this specific individual is a powerful man in Syria. So we've been dealing with the Israelites. Now we shift gears and we talk about a powerful Syrian, which I don't think I need to inform you that their relationship would not have been that great, except we do know that God has been using the Syrians to punish the Israelites. But who is almost the missing character in this story of Naaman? God uses a lowly little servant girl who, in essence, has been grabbed in the middle of war to go into a Syrian context to provide deliverance for a very powerful man in Syria. We see this little servant girl go before this very powerful man and say, You need to go to Israel. The faith of this little child confronts this this mighty man of valor, and he responds. The only problem is he responds wrongly. (laughs) Because what does he do? He goes to his boss, the king of Syria, who sends a letter to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel says, What? You know, we've been going through this uh, 1st and 2nd Kings. And we all know the kings of Israel are bad, right? (laughs) Am I God? You're not even a man of God, let alone God. And so Elisha hears about it and says, "Uh, King, don't worry, I got this. Naaman comes down, and what does Elisha do? He does not even get off his couch, (laughs) He's like, leprosy? I brought people back to life. Here's what you do. Go down, take a bath, you'll be fine. So this man is in a place where his faith is initiated by this Israelite girl. And he comes to a place thinking he's going to be healed. He's on this journey of faith. And the door, in essence, is never even opened, right? He stands at the gate, and he gets this instruction. And his response is what? (laughs) Come on. The water in Israel is bad. I could have taken a bath in much cleaner water in Damascus. You really think this is going to work? And his servant So this faith becomes a little bit contagious because the servant's like, hey, maybe this will work. And sure enough, he washes in the river seven times, not just once, it can never be once, because he has to do it multiple times. And it's just like, I mean, before and after, R and F. He goes from leper to child. Voila, seven times, seven applications. It's amazing. but that's not where his faith ends. Because he returns to the man of God, verse 15, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. He actually gets to him now. Elisha uh, doesn't just say, wait outside. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Look what just happened. This guy is from Syria. Syria. He is not a follower of Yahweh. God uses this little servant girl to bring this Syrian leader to faith. We can't miss this amidst the amazingness of what is going on. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So he has no faith, suspect faith, full faith. Uh, bu, 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 bu. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged, urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or a sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when the master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there. Leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So, he doesn't understand how all of this works. Naaman doesn't understand how all of this works, and he thinks he needs to pay for the blessing that he has received from God. And he does not. And it's not that he doesn't uh, just leave and say, Well, I guess I'm set he goes a step further and he says, can I have some dirt from this place because I want to, in essence, set up my own church, my own altar back in Syria so that I no longer have to worship this foreign god, little g. I want to worship Yahweh. And when I go in to worship this other god, may it be that I am not worshiping that god, that I am worshiping Yahweh. Sounds familiar, right? uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these people that are having to worship these other gods in these other places. He comes to this faith moment where his life has been forever changed, and he says, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to lose this. And Elisha's like, yeah, here's some dirt. And Gehazi, remember when he couldn't bring the boy back to life, We start to see this thing happen. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Sounds like a familiar question, right? Same question that's asked uh, to the Shumanite woman. And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, uh, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags and two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said, "'Where have you been, Gehazi?' And he said, "'Nowhere.'" (laughs) God busted. "'Your servant went nowhere?' But he said to him, "'Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you?' "'Was it a time to accept money and garments, "'olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, "'male servants and female servants? "'Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you "'and to your descendants forever.'" So he went out from that place, a leper, from his presence, a leper-like snow. Gehazi is like, wait, wait, whoa. Maybe we can capitalize here, right? And does, does Elisha really need to know? I mean, it's not that big of a deal if I just skim a little bit off the top. And Elisha is like, you you don't get it. It's not about the money or the garments or the olive orchards or the vineyards or the sheep or the oxen or the male servants or female servants. We are more than set. We don't need any of these things from any of these people. God blesses us and there is nothing that we need in return. And so let you be a visible sign to the rest of the world that you cannot cheat God. And so Gehazi is is stricken as a leper. And the Syrian man, this leader, who is a Gentile, he is a non-Jew, is blessed by God, healed by God because of his faith and his uh, obedience to what God has called him to do. And he wants to worship God in spirit and truth. And an Israelite who is close to Elisha doesn't even get it. But one thing we need to be aware of is he isn't stricken dead. So, yes, he makes a mistake. But when he makes a mistake, there is punishment. And there is visible punishment. There is a sign for him to, when he goes in and when he goes out, people will forever remember the sin that he has committed. And I thought to myself, what if there was a visible sign of my sin and the punishment from God from the sins that I've committed in my life? Chances are I probably would sin less. Notice I said chances are, because oftentimes there is visible signs of our sin, but those also are visible signs of the hope that we have and being forgiven of those sins. That was a lot of talking. (laughs) A lot of text. Go to your groups.